The sci-fi horror weirdness of Skullface Astronaut is in its third decade of lo-fi B-movie madness creating indie horror films like Drifter, Beyond the Wall of Fear, Blood Creek Woodsman, plus the brand new Channel 99. Strange Monsters, Lovecraft Adaptations, Final Girls, and Buckets of Blood, they're all here on DVD, streaming, and even limited edition VHS. Check out SkullfaceAstronaut.com for trailers, picks, and even production and convention diaries. That's SkullfaceAstronaut.com. Excellent job, Eric. Uh, I would also like to add to that that they have a Manos sequel on their website, and uh, that might be of interest to uh, any of our listeners that are fans of Manos, The Hands of Fate. But uh, before we start the show, I got to give a shout out to our benevolent overlords over at Fangoria. It's been over 40 years since Fangoria debuted, and it is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria dot com right now to learn more and to subscribe and while you're there make sure to enter the promo code kingcast to save 25 percent off your yearly subscription now on with the show hi my name is stephen king Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. I would call today's guest a rising star in the world of horror writing, but for readers and horror hounds who've been paying attention, uh, he reached that point a long time ago and has just kept going. He's the award-winning author of over two dozen novels, including 2016's Mongrels, last year's The Only Good Indians, and this month's beautifully titled My Heart is a Chainsaw, not to mention countless short stories and even an X-Men story for Marvel. Today, we are hyped to be talking to him about 2018's The Outsider and its 2020 HBO adaptation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you all for having me. It's an honor to speak with you all. Oh, we are we are delighted to have you here. I got to admit that I, I came to your writing a little bit later than uh, some of my other fellow horror readers have not quite finished my heart is a chainsaw. What I have read of it, I'm a big fan of. I, I, I looked up a few interviews with you, and um, I saw a lot of the same questions being asked, and it was for a lot of the same books. So I'd like to not pester you with any only good Indians questions or Mongols questions or so on and so forth. Uh, there is one specific thing I want to focus on, which is a uh, a short story you wrote for Nightmare Magazine. Uh, in February of 2021 called Hairy Legs and All. This is a, well, it's a story told from a, uh, the perspective of a man who has just inserted his foot into a shoe that has a tarantula in it. And I guess I lied up front. I don't really have a question about this. I just wanted to tell you that is really fucking uncool that now every single time I put on a pair of shoes, I have to 
think about what might be in that shoes. And if it is a tarantula, I am scared shitless of spiders. Uh, I find this very unfair and irresponsible what you have done, but it is a great story. And I recommend it to anyone who is similarly terrified of spiders. Oh man, thank you so much. Um, that's about the highest highest compliment you can pay a horror writer is that you <laughs> change someone's daily behavior. You know, like um, you know, Alfred Hitchcock changed the way we all relate to showers. You know, for for like generations. For real. Yeah, and um, and I mean, spiders are already scary, of course. But um, you know, I grew up way out in the country, and that was just a that was every morning when you woke up and put on your boots. That's what you did. I mean, your boots are all by the front door because you don't want to track stuff in. But you shake your boots that, you know, hit the, you hit the hill on the ground or whatever. And then you turn them up and shake whatever's in there out, you know, because if you don't, then um, it, it actually tarantulas. I've actually never seen a tarantula crawl into a shoe like that. But that's always been my terror. I have seen scorpions do it a lot. You know? Oh, for sure. Yeah. We're both yeah. we're both located in Texas. So we're. Yeah well familiar with the flora and the fauna around here, which are right. both of which are just needlessly aggressive at all times. <laughs> yeah. Whether or yeah, not no. it's like something trying to bite you or allergies, you are fucked either way if you were in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I can handle scorpions, but cedar, that, that piece of shit cedar is the scariest <laughs> damn thing here. Uh, um, Growing up in West Texas, um, every few years, it must be on some sort of tarantula cycle. The tarantulas all come up from the ground like it must be like mating season or being born season. I don't know what's going on, but they come up and they blanket like acres at a time. And if you want to drive, yeah, and if you want to drive anywhere, you have to like crunch through tarantulas, and it's crazy, man. Yeah, it was what? I know it's wicked. Like fields of tarantulas? Yeah, fields of tarantulas. Yeah. Oh man, I know where we're doing a a live Kingcast recording just to watch uh, Scott's reaction. You couldn't catch me within ten miles of that shit happening. (laughs) I would, you would see me turn into like I would be clawing at the dash and shrieking like a cheerleader if I had to be anywhere near that. But you, that is a question I wanted to ask. Like you said, you hadn't found a tarantula in, in. one of your boots before but have you had a, a negative experience with a spider before like are you scared of them you know I, i've had, i've definitely had a intense spider experience when we were um let me think when i was in fifth no this was earlier this was like this was between second and third grade years i think we moved into this house out in the country that um this guy had been building, but he had run out of money. He went bust. And so he just like walked away from the house and it was pretty much just a frame and tar paper, you know? And, mm-hmm. and we, we bought it and moved into it. And we, the idea was we would finish it as we lived there, you know? And so mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like, I remember one morning I was woken up by wasp biting me all on the neck, you know, cause it was like, oh, open, it was like open to the elements, you know, but, right. um, but it was a two story house and, you know, I'm crawling around all the spaces that are, gonna get walled off you know and way back under the stairway like right where it's like it's most wedgiest i guess i found a um a magazine a faded magazine that some some i guess that guy had been reading or something i don't know how i got back there and um and on the cover was this pale weird dude that um terrified me to no end and i think looking back it may have been max headroom this may have been like a size <laughs> <or something. laughs> That is the last person I expected you to name. <laughs> but that terrified me so, so much. And um, so I dropped the magazine. I wouldn't touch the magazine anymore, but I knew I had to cordon it off, you know, to keep the family safe. And so, <laughs> and so there were um, there were black widows all over the house, you know. And so I went and caught a lot of black widows and like put them in little jars and got candles and 
like made a circle around this Max Headroom magazine, and then it got walled <laughs> off. It got walled off. So I guess that must be still walled off in that oh house. Oh my somebody, god! Yeah, somebody might find it someday. But I was, I knew that if I didn't put a wall around that Max Headroom, that he was going to get my family and me. You know, <laughs> you 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 made like a, a totem out of it. Yeah, well, that's like yeah. some black magic shit. <laughs> you know what? I guess I, I didn't even think about it. I have another bad spider experience. I have two more, actually. Oh, wow. I was up in Seattle. I was doing a week or a 10-day or something workshop up there, and they stashed me in this room in this old house. And I walk in, and you know how when um spider eggs burst, like the spiders just kite around, and there's like thousands of them, you know? Right, on right. The, like the end trend. of Charlotte's Web. Yeah. yeah, and that was happening in that room. It was just thick Fuck. with spiders. And, um, and I told the people downstairs that, you know, were putting me up, I said, Hey, you know, this is a spider room. And they said, Oh yeah, it's that, that's that season. And I was like, well, and, <laughs> and, so, and so I lived, I lived in that room the whole time and there were spiders crawling on me constantly, these little baby spiders. And they were all in my brush and everything that I had was coated with spiders. It was a really weird week, man. Was- that's your room, Scott. <laughs> yeah, I know. I would not play that game. <laughs> the only the only time I ever saw Black Widows in real life was I went to a military school for high school on like the Texas Mexico border in a you know or very very cl- not Nimi uh, very close to it Nimi was New Mexico right yeah yeah I was at MMA which okay. was Marine Military Academy yeah. in Harlingen Texas so about yeah. I don't know thirty forty miles north of the border. Yeah. But might as well have been there. The mosquitoes down there were fucking shoes and smoked cigarettes. <laughs> it was it was nuts. But there was one day I got in trouble for something or another. And so me and, you know, some like four or five other guys who had gotten in trouble for other things were all like our our punishment that day was we had to go like clean out this corrugated tin shack on the edge of the campus it had shit in there that no one had looked at in years and they just wanted to use it for something else or something. So like it was us and like a drill instructor went out there and we cracked open the door on it and there was a nest of black widows in there. Oh wow! I saw like, I saw one of them and was like, fuck you. I'm out. <laughs> and also like, if you can't appreciate that, you can call my parents and I will leave this fucking school right now with, <laughs> with what we paid. Like there is no amount of trouble I can get into. That's going to get me into a room with those things like i do not fuck around with that and you know it took all of about 10 minutes and then the drill instructor was like oh we'll we'll find you something else to do because like no one no one was messing around with oh man started acting like renfield in the corner just going (laughs) being driven insane by this nest of black widows just the idea the very idea of being within the same county as a nest of black widows was enough to like send me into like borderline paralysis. <laughs> yeah. And this was also like an environment where like being tough or acting yeah. tough was like very important, you yeah. know? And I was like reduced to a quivering mess. In yeah. Like yeah. That quick. You know, black widows are scary just because of how they're shaped. Like, um, like right. wolf, spi- wolf spiders, they're super fast, but they're not that scary because they bite you. It's like a wasp, you know? I mean, you don't want one right. on you. You don't want one on you, but black widows are kind of slow and deliberate and, and you know that they don't have to be fast because they're so poison, you know, and that to mm-hmm. me is just terrifying to no end. Man. They're sinister. Right. Yeah, they are. Um, but oh, oh the, uh, another spider story is when I was in high school, I was in FFA and we went on a, um, to a stock show out in El Paso from Midland, Texas, you know, about six hours away. And, um, mm-hmm. and uh, let's see, I'm probably 16, 17. And somehow we found some beer like you do, you know, and, um, and <laughs> I ended up sleeping out in my, in the stall with my steer, you know, and 
which wasn't any big deal as long as it didn't step on me and it, it didn't step on me. So I was fine. But I woke up that next day with this huge like boil on my forearm and it would not go away even when I came back home a couple of days later. And so I went to the doctor and he said, yeah, that's a spider egg. A spider laid an egg in you. And um, oh. <laughs> How was this not the story you led with? This is way worse than finding a Max Headroom magazine. <laughs> I know. I forgot about it. I don't, I don't, I don't think that my spider story is indexed very well. But, um, and so he said he just went in the other room and got a probe or, you know, a needle thing. And he, oh God, he, and he cleaned, cleaned that space on my arm and he poked it. He burst it. And when he did, like it felt like electricity or poison just went up and down my arm like crazy and it hurt a lot, but it got better almost immediately, you know, but that's so that was what came uh, out of it. Just like pus or nothing pretty much, but a little bit of pus, you know? Yeah. The, um, the egg hadn't had time to gestate, yeah. Scott. Right. Yeah, right, it, yeah, it, right. It wasn't like that scary stories to tell in the dark. That's what oh, I was imagining. The red yeah, spot was, where the, the right, lady yeah. like burst the thing on her face. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've done, I've done, I've got two other spider short stories. One is spider box about the box that spiders eternally come out of. And another one is, um, it's actually a true story. It's about me and my mom being at a parade, this little small town parade where we grew up. And that morning we had all been sleeping on the porch because we were at my grandma's house, I guess. And she woke up with a spider bite on her, on her hand. I think it was her hand or wrist somewhere right around there. And it was obviously a spider bite. And, um, but we wanted to go to the parade. And so what she did was she, um, she drew a circle around the spider bite with a marker and then it was doing blood poisoning, you know, those red streaks that grow up from it. And if they, mm-hmm. reach, if they reach your heart, the legend is you die. I don't know if that's, I've never seen it happen. So I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, and so she would all through the parade, she was marking it off like nine fifteen, nine twenty two, and we and the whole time in the parade, we're watching that that black, that red line crawl her up her arm, so we can get her to the doctor before she dies, but so we can also see the parade, you know. <laughs> Some dark parade. tower shit that happens with Roland yeah. in the dark tower when he gets bitten by the the lobstrosity. I um, like the it, attitude of like moms come and go, but parades. <laughs> We can't just like wander away from a parade right now because someone's getting blood poisoning. It'll be fine if it doesn't reach her heart. Yeah, yeah. Priorities, people. Priorities. Yeah, the parade was just once a year. Huh? Well, um, let's talk about your your Stephen King origin story. When yeah. did he first come onto your your radar as a, a presence in pop you know, culture? It was, was it a movie, a book, or it was uh, a book, a novel, and it must have been. 88 possibly shading into 89 i don't have a hard date for it but um i was reading a lot i'd always been reading a lot i started out in louis lamore westerns and conan the barbarian everything i could read about conan you know then i kind of right. shaped into science thrillers everything that i could get at the used bookstore basically and um and somehow i had come on with a stephen king book i had no idea who he was i think back then i thought king was a title more than a name you know i didn't <laughs> understand <laughs> I thought his, his name is usually bigger than the title. It is. <laughs> exactly. you know? And the book I came home with was Tommyknockers. And oh my I, God. And I stayed up all night reading that novel and it um, thrilled me and terrified me so much. And I still like that novel. I know a lot of people, you know, are turned off by that novel, but I like that. You know, I like that. I like from a Buick Aid. I seem, I seem to like some of the ones that aren't, aren't the most popular ones, but um, in Lissy's story, I love forever love Lissy's story. But um, after that, the next one I read was Christine. I'm pretty sure it's Christine because I remember that it has that CCR like epigraph above one of the chapters. And that just blew my mind because I thought here is a writer who listens to the same stuff I listen to. This, this can't really happen. You know, people like writers are so removed that they don't 
partake mm-hmm. in the, the real world. Right. You know, like when I was coming up, all I, all I was ever going to do was be a farmer. I had no idea that there was any kind of path or track that would lead to being a writer. There was like, I knew nobody who read books or anything, you know, and, um, and it just blew me away that somebody could know CCR, you know? I, yeah. I totally know what you're talking about. Like when, for as long as I can remember, Nine Inch Nails has been my band. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I love Nine Inch Nails like I love food or water, right? Mm-hmm. And when the final Dark Tower book came out and I went to the store to actually obtain my copy of it, mm-hmm. like I flipped it open and like the title page had a quote from a Nine Inch Nails song on it. Yeah. And it was like the, the, the meeting of these two things that I loved so much, like... <laughs> My two favorite things, the Dark Tower and Nine Inch Nails. And on the final Dark Tower book, oh, my God. I just about <laughs> shit my pants right there in Barnes & Noble. It was incredible. Oh, man. Yeah, that's yeah, So that I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 That all speaks to just, I think, the reason why it's easy to become obsessed with King because he doesn't, he isn't removed. He's not this, yeah. you know, Faulkner-esque, you know, kind of writing God that's his uh-huh. own. He's just a dude. He's uh-huh. just a guy. You see him talk. He's a guy. Uh-huh. You know, he's a laid back guy that you meet at a, you know, a restaurant or a bar or something. You know, he just happens to be one of the best writers that's ever lived, yeah. you know, at the same time. And but th- that all comes across in his writing. And that's why it's so personable. And I guess why, you know, my uh, my personal theory is that's why people, you know, who fall in love with King stuff, like fall so hard in love with it, because it's it's very personable. So he becomes a member of the family mm-hmm. in a weird way. Yeah. You know, like when I guess this must be an on writing or maybe it's in dance macabre. I forget where it is, but he's talking about how before Carrie hit, like, you know, he and his wife, it was all about getting together, like, you know, $12 to buy amoxicillin for whatever of the kids was sick that mm-hmm. week, you know? And I'm um, right. And he's never lost that. I mean, he's, you know, he's rolling in success, but he's, his character's, they always feel like they're in the real world. A lot of writers I read who are, you know, wonderfully talented. You can tell that um, the money concerns that they put on the page are a little bit false, you know, right. like they're, they're kind of having to fake it. Like they're having to pretend that somebody's digging in the couch to get enough dimes to buy a Whopper, you know, but, um, <laughs> right. but right. when I read, when I read Stephen King, like he, he somehow has held on to that. I don't know how he's done it, but he has really held on to that in a way that um, makes his stuff always, easy to identify with for me. Well, you know? I blue think collar there's background, a, you yeah, know, yeah, I think yeah. it's in his bones. That's it's it's it. not just blue collar. It's like abject poverty. Like he was living in a trailer with no heat, yeah. with no phone. Yeah. It's like, you know, he, this isn't a guy that struggled, you yeah. know, a little bit, you know, coming out, you know, oh man, it sucked. I had to live in a two bedroom apartment, yeah. you know, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, you know, like that dude, you know, he was, you know, he was again an average guy. You know, he got married young. He was pumping mm-hmm. out kids before he had a real steady job. He was building his family when he didn't really have the means to support the family. Really, sure. he lived that experience, and and I think when you go through that, it's it's very traumatic, even if you don't uh, register that you know at the time. And and you know that trauma obviously stayed with him. Yeah, it's formative, and I think you never really lose that. You know, I mean. He doesn't have to worry about, um, can I buy this movie on iTunes anymore? You know, because no. he, <laughs> yeah, right. he can right. probably buy iTunes if he wants. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, he never. it never feels like he's having a fake wanting to buy that pink medicine, if that makes sense, you know? Right. Yeah, totally. Now, he's he, really good at that in, in many aspects, too. I mean, that's, I think, why he writes uh, children so well is because yeah. for some reason he can remember 
and put himself back in childhood in a way that a lot of people can't like I, I couldn't like, you know, I don't think I could, you know, objectively and accurately write a kid the way he does, you know, Uh and and put Uh myself back into my, my childhood in such a way that, that it rings as authentic and not pandering and, you know, but also not, you know, forgiving of, of, you know, not, not an adult's view of what a child is. Childhood's way more complex than, than most people write it. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, yeah, he does childhood as good as like um, Harry Cruz has a book called Childhood: An Autobiography of a Place, and and um, mm-hmm. Stephen King does it just as well as Harry Cruz, I think. And you're right, writing kids is one of his strong suits, and you know, but another one of his strong suits, it's really kind of related to um, writing from a kid's angle, is um, bullies. Stephen King does bullies mm-hmm. better than anyone, I think, and and that what they do is they 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 almost dynamic the way they operate dynamically in the story is they clearly demarcate um who's good and who's evil or who who needs our sympathy or whatever you know right. and um, like the the bully in um and it um what's it what's that guy's name is it bowers henry? yeah henry bowers, bowers. yeah um that yeah. guy like i <clears throat> not wish enough bad on him you know but um <laughs> it, it speaks well to king's ability to put a bully on the page powerfully yeah. enough that I like have real emotions, you know, like I'm, yeah. I hate that dude, you know? Yeah. It yeah, makes exactly. me wonder if there's a side of King's personality that, that is, you know, that, I mean, he definitely understands bullying and bullying behavior. Oh. I remember reading something where he was talking about, uh, well, bullies kind of inspired his career. The, the, I'm, the thing I'm thinking about was uh Carrie kind of sprung yeah. from how he saw bullies interacting with like the quiet girl in class when he was a teacher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in a weird way, bullies are the, one of the cornerstones of oh, what yeah. made Stephen King, Stephen King. Yeah. That's really perceptive. I had never considered that, but that's completely yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got a taste of it on his own probably. And then he got mm. to observe it again from like the adult's perspective when he yeah. was, yeah. when he was teaching in that. One thing I do want to ask you is that yeah. you mentioned a number of books, but you did not mention any of the movies, which is uncommon with mm. our guests. You mm-hmm. know, usually it's like, I read this book, then I saw this movie. Just out of curiosity, when did you first start watching King movies? And also, how do you feel on the whole about how his work has been adapted over the years? Yeah, you know, I don't have a clear memory of which of his films or adaptations that I saw first. I mean, I'd love to say I'd love to say it was like The Shining, you know, or something. But um, <laughs> to tell you the truth, popular I answer. Yeah, I know. I did. I probably didn't see The Shining until I was in my twenties, to be honest. Um, I growing up out in, the, out in the country, we had like um, two and a half stations, you know, on a thirteen-inch TV, and so we didn't get you know nothing for TV. And um, I didn't start going to movies until my first movie. I think I was eleven, twelve years old, and that was it. Blew my mind that a TV could be this big, you know. Right. And, <laughs> and I didn't actually start going to movies until late high school, probably. Um, I watched a lot of VHS slashers, you know, I'd get from wherever, but, um, and of course faces of death, we were all trading the faces of death tapes all around, you know? <laughs> oh, God. but I honestly do not recall what was my first Stephen King, like ad- adaptation experience. You know, you know, it may have been now that I think about it, I wonder if it wasn't, um, creep show, you know, and I had no idea that was King, but it may have been creep show actually. That's one we hear pretty frequently too. Yeah. You know, it's on- appealing appealing yeah. to kids that one because right. it's yeah. you know it's it's colorful yeah it it definitely uh plays plays into an aesthetic the kids are drawn to for sure yeah for sure man yeah now when we um 
first started talking to your rep about having you appear on the show, we we got back a number of options mm -hmm. to choose from that you had picked. And we agreed on The Outsider. So just for starters, I'm curious why The Outsider was on your list. Give me your general response to the novel and and also like assuming that you've seen the series, like yeah. uh, what you thought about that. Well, um, you know, I mean, even before The Outsider, I'd read the Bill Hodges trilogy, you know, so yeah. I was really, mm -hmm. really familiar with Holly, you know, um, The Outsider to me, it's just like an adrenaline novel. I know it, I mean, it's kind of built like procedural and slow burn, but the tension is just like palpable on the page in that book. Um, mm, yeah, I, like that's what, what King's doing. And he's really good at like maximizing this kind of stuff is he's, um, putting his, um, who we think is going to be like the protagonist and, and um, in a terrible, terrible situation that there's no way out of. Cause he is on video done, having done terrible stuff, you know? And, and that is such a big fear, especially in, in today's age with like deep fakes and everything, you know, that, right. that we could all be set up in this way. And what would we do if there was incontrovertible proof that we had done something, you know, dastardly, um, how would we respond? And right. Stephen King's really good at situations. And then he, he plugs like real people into these situations and then they do things that, um, we imagine that we m might also do. And we just identify, I identified with it really deeply. And I was so, so thrilled. Like when I thought the novel couldn't get any better, then it goes into some caves and caves are my favorite thing in the world. You know? so <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to to also say that it's it's really interesting that we're finally getting into some modern era king uh, yes. on the show and I love the fact that you picked this this book because it does in many ways the outsider is like a snapshot of where king is right now as an author. Right. Yeah, so totally. you, you mentioned the Bill Hodges stuff and, and Holly Gibney being his like new favorite character. We're in the Holly Gibney phase of Stephen King's career. Yeah. Like he had his Castle Rock phase. He had the, yeah. the phase where every goddamn story had the shop in it for some reason. <laughs> you know, it's like he had all these different phases and, and we're in the, the Gibney phase. Like she is in all the Bill Hodges books. She was introduced there. She's in this. She's in If It Bleeds. Yeah. And I have a feeling like Holly Gibney's going to be around for, you know, for quite a while. Uh -huh. Um, but it's also introducing this concept of the outsider, which is kind of a, a distant cousin to a Pennywise style uh -huh. monster. Uh -huh. And what I really love about this is you can tell that he's obsessed with the idea of this monster, which is why he revisits it with Holly Gibney in if it bleeds, yeah. um, which I'm not sure if you've read that story yeah, yet, have, but, yeah, have, yeah. but you know, I love that, you know, he's starting to explore this thing and you can, I like, I just have a feeling like not only is Holly going to be around in future stories, but we're mm -hmm. also going to get more outsider stuff. It feels like, you know, there hasn't been a button on the outsider as in, uh, as a creature for him, like yeah. that with, if it bleeds, they, find that there's another version yeah. of this thing that's different yeah you know and it, it feels like he's just scratching the surface of of this right now but you can tell he's obsessed with it which is why i think the book is so fun to read no I, you're, you're totally right yeah go on go on well i, w I was gonna say i i really want to have this conversation about the outsider itself and what that monster is mm -hmm. but before we get to that i i think we should lay out the the general plot of the outsider both versions of it just for anyone who who hasn't read it, Stephen, would you be, would you be interested in doing the honors on that? Like, uh, just oh yeah, sure, laying yeah, out the um, basic plot. 
yeah, a father in kind of a small town, a father and a husband, you know, a respectable member of the community in a small town, turns out to be the prime suspect in a child murder. And he's like running around trying to prove that it's not him. But um, man, there's genetic evidence. There's um, video proof. It's looking 100% like it's him. And then an investigator who's, you know, got his own little constellation of issues to deal with, of course, gets involved kind of reluctantly and um, turns out... I'm trying to give a synopsis that doesn't totally spoil it. I don't know. Maybe I... Oh, you can spoil it. <laughs> it's <That's> okay. okay. <laughs> right. oh, it, yeah. yeah, it turns out that um, the reason that that father, husband, respectable member of the community was was framed was that he had come into contact kind of indirectly with a creature of legend that um, has the ability to, over a period of you know weeks or to to turn into someone else and this creature has turned into him and done a crime you know and and this investigator gets on the trail of that creature and this investigator is you know not really down with the supernatural but um (laughs) things things snowball and um he kind of has to face up to it and pulls in holly gibney and she has a way of um she doesn't get emotionally involved she doesn't like let presuppositions color what she suspects could actually be going on and that's kind of her superpower so she and that investigator and i'm probably mixing the series and the book because they've melded together in my head you know but um they end up chasing this monster person through backstory a little bit you know through a nursing home and but then they they have a big standoff at some caves in kentucky if i remember correctly and they, I, I think it's in Texas, isn't it? Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, the whole, the at least whole? in the book. I, I don't know if yeah. they do it in the in the series. Yeah. In the series, it's different. Because okay. I remember, they like they, they, yeah. they have like this whole thing where they're staying with this uh, this person just yeah. outside of Austin, and I was just like, hell yeah, it's close to home, baby. <laughs> nice, nice. I don't, know, I don't know why. I think I was thinking Kentucky because I associate like mammoth caves with like big. <laughs> yeah, you know? but anyway, yeah, they they put down this adoration of the monster you know at great personal expense but um the trick the the magic of this um story to me is that like unlike in um dr sleep where we have this roving band of like psychic vampires and you know they they all get destroyed and we think it's over those traveling vampires are gone in this case this monster was just one instantiation of probably a whole species that are worldwide and as we find out if it bleeds there are different types. They they express differently in different places, different circumstances, and and so what King's done here is he kind of has um, opened up a door, and there are there's potentially so many stories behind it. I think, and Holly will probably be involved in some. I would guess she probably won't be involved in some if he if he takes this further, you know. Right. But it's very very it's a very productive. Um, monster because he's instead of a single pennywise he's created a class of monsters you know i think that's really really smart and what's interesting about this and you know apologies if anybody you know since it is more current you know i am a little more uh, understanding of people who maybe haven't read it or seen this yet but uh you know, it's apologies in, for the spoilers if you haven't gotten here yet, but it's impossible to talk about the outsider without talking about the outsider, right? <laughs> like, the, right. so totally. the mystery at the heart of this thing is, you know, is how can a guy be in two places at once? And yeah. 
is he lying? Is he, is he not like, it doesn't make any sense that his fingerprints, all everything that you would trust in the law is in, is, is pointing to him as the bad guy, DNA fingerprints, you know, like you said, security camera footage, like this guy's there, you know, did it. Um, and his explanation is this, is this uh, creature, you know, essentially this thing that's lived among us. But what I love about the confrontation at the end isn't that like, oh, there's a whole race of like scroll, you know, <laughs> if you're mm-hmm. in the Marvel universe yeah. that are just like all, always around us and we, we don't know about it is yeah. they're very rare, but they exist because he makes a mention of like the, the outsider when they corner him, they like, he says something like, like, you know, have you ever found another one of me? Like he's, he knows that the other versions, you know, other creatures like him exist, but he's never come across one in all the, the years and years and years he's been around doing this. And I think the one in if it bleeds has mentioned that he's been around or it has been around for definitely decades, if not centuries. Yeah. So, yeah. So these things, they, uh, they don't just like, they do kill people, uh, but it's it's more they don't it's not like Pennywise where he's eating children. This yeah. is like uh, but it is like Pennywise in that he, you know, the the salt and pepper, he flavors his food uh, mm-hmm. with, you know, terror and fear. Mm-hmm. That's what Pennywise really feeds on is the fear of uh, of children specifically. And uh, these guys, at least the one in the outsider feeds on grief and the chaos and, and everything that's ar- around. So it's not that he kills this child. It's that he watches how the killing of this child destroys this community and you know, how the community hatred towards the, the man that they perceive to have done this horrific thing, mm-hmm. you know, festers and, and how it destroys lives. Like the entire family of the, the little boy that he kills, um, the Peterson family just disintegrates. Like the older brother fucking murders straight up murders, Terry Maitland, who's the, the guy accused, you know, he shoots him, shoots him out in public and, you know, and, and he is in turn is killed by, by, uh, Anderson, the, the cop. So that's happening. Like the, they, they have this whole great line in the novels where you see the interior home life after the death of the younger boy yeah. and how like, just the mom isn't there anymore. She's checked out and like, you know, it's, everything is just deteriorating and that's what he's there for. And so that's what he hangs around for this creature. He hangs around it, you know, cause he's, he's uh, just soaking it all up. And, and it's such a fascinating, more complex, you know, uh, idea of, of a creature. And I really, I really do love it. I, I think that this is like King at the top of his game. This is like, I don't know. Primetime King is, is on display here completely agree this is king at the top of his game and and what what really makes this monster cool to me is that um though the monster is doing evil i don't know if the monster itself is evil because it has to eat you know it has it's it's like a vampire it needs blood and it needs needs blood from humans so it's going to do what a vampire does it's it's similar to that i mean yeah we're mad at a mountain lion when a mountain lion you know, does something terrible to someone on a trail, but at the same time, we're not thinking of those mountain lions, cubs back in the den, starving without that, you know? Um, and that's kind of how I see this monster. Um, and this monster, I mean, it does definitely derive not just sustenance, but satisfaction from like inhaling this grief or just so, you know, just being close around it and soaking it in. I think any of us would do that. We would learn to spice our food to our own preference, you know? (laughs) Right. Get the right ingredients in that protein shake in the morning. Exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do you believe that the creature in the outsider is of the same species as, say, as Eric was talking about, like Pennywise from It or Dandelo from the last book in the Dark Tower series? 
who was like a variant on this that fed on laughter versus yeah. versus fear. Yeah. My impulse is no, but um, you never can tell with King because he has an ability to tie everything together three books later. <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> I don't know. Yep. I just feel like if like Pennywise and the Outsider are mm-hmm. very similar, Dandelo is sort of like questionable. Yeah. But I I love the idea of a species of creature that is a shapeshifter and also just feeds on different emotions. Yeah. You yeah. know, I would want that to be be true so much. I think this is in terms of creating a great monster, this is a great fucking monster. No, it totally is. And you know, talking about creatures that feed on emotions, I, that's what I, that was always my I love 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 it. It's probably the most nostalgically fulfilling book to me of King's hmm. all of his work. But um I always wonder like Pennywise the you know, the alien thing it is that crash landed on earth eons ago. I always wonder those must've been some lean times back when dinosaurs were around. Cause what kind of terror do you get from a dinosaur? You know, <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, he can get like meat and blood, but that's not what he really needs. You know? Right. Yeah. I've always wondered about that's that. That's a, that's a really good question. <laughs> if it's really firmly established that Pennywise's main source of food is fear, yeah. especially children's fear. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that, that motherfucker must've hibernated for <laughs> like <laughs> a couple million years after he crash landed. Yeah. I think it was probably he just, just well, Stephen he would King's just have mind. to figure out what it, what scares a dinosaur like something like scares a, a, a dinosaur, dinosaur right yeah something would scare a brontosaurus he could just be turn into a t-rex right like seriously there, there's like, the prequel comic to, book like the prequel have, comic book pennywise the t-rex like my vacuum scares the dog right if i were a creature if i were a creature that was like turning into things to like make the thing I wanted to feed on yeah. scared, yeah. I would turn it into, <laughs> into yeah. a vacuum to like feed on the dog's fear. So there must be something. What I'm getting to is what are dinosaurs afraid of? I know. That's what, really what we're here to talk about. Uh, that's meteors. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> I think I think they didn't know shit about meteors. I think they were <laughs> no, of course not. probably blindsided by that one. And we're like, oh shit. Yeah, we don't Jesus, like those now. Uh, according yeah. to the according to the church I went to, Jesus scared dinosaurs. <laughs> what? Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, no. I would, I would think uh, you know how like, they had the yeah. those churches where it's like yeah. Jesus and walked around when dinosaurs yeah. were around, you know, or whatever. It's yeah. like Right. I I'd heard that, but I didn't hear ever hear a thing about Jesus scaring them which would would have been hilarious like like that's the story i want to hear jesus popping out of bushes during the cretaceous and being like boo dinosaurs are like what the fuck dude oh man yeah um i'd be into that i would think a brontosaurus would be scared of like no trees you know like um Mm -hmm. like there's nothing to eat like but you know rept i don't know how reptile brains work i mean who who does really know what it's like to be a reptile except that's true i guess sleeve stacks know but they don't really tell us (laughs) but um for some reason i feel like reptiles are stimulus response you know like um Hmm. when a baby alligator sees a raccoon about to eat it 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 scampers away and it cries out an alarm to its mom. But I wonder if it really feels the same, what we, what we call fear. I don't know. I, I just have no idea. And I should probably maybe just probably, fire would do it then. Yeah. Maybe if I were you know, a field fire. of fire yeah. would, would yeah. scare a brontosaurus probably. Yeah. yeah. And also so, like, is the fear is the fear that Pennywise feeds on or the grief that the outsider feeds on? Is it commiserate to the thing that is feeling it for, in uh, other words, like, yeah. If, oh, yeah, yeah. if it's a child, a very small thing, is that like yeah. a snack? Where yeah. if, like with a brontosaurus and you show it something that's scary, 
Yeah. You know, or is that like a full meal because it's a whole ass brontosaurus? Yeah. You know, yeah. we're raising they, all kinds of important questions today here <laughs> on the show. Or if your brain is the size of a walnut and it's in two places in your body, like is that just a is that just a snack, you know? Whereas maybe a baby right. morphine. I don't know. That's that's true as well. Yeah. Yeah. I can uh I'm gonna I, add this to the list of questions. Should Stephen King ever appear on the show? <laughs> <laughs> uh it will something that I feel is really interesting to kind of look at especially if we're trying to figure out if the it creature and the outsider creature kind of related is it's shown at the end of uh the book it and it's never made it in any of the adaptations but it's shown that that it was female or was at least able to uh to lay eggs essentially so at least to to procreate um replicate whatever um so they showed it showed that she was able to lay eggs and uh, they make a big deal. Like we got to squash all these eggs cause we don't want, uh-huh. you know, a, a, a thousand Pennywise's. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's been on this earth as we've established for, for a millennia. Right. So yeah. Yeah. the, you could make the case that, that Pennywise or that original creature already laid eggs and oh. that the, the brood, I guess is the word I'm searching for there. Yeah. Um, kind of turned into these outsider creatures that, you know, walk among us and shapeshift. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. And they would be different because like, like you were saying that it's not really procreation. It's more like replication, but it's like, I think replication suffers from the carbon copy syndrome where every generation is lesser and lesser, you know? And yeah. And I can see the outsider creatures. They, they might be a 90% dialed back version of Pennywise or something. That's really cool. Yeah. What fertilized those eggs is what I'm asking. Yeah. Yeah. A copy of a copy of a Pennywise. (laughs) Yeah, this I mean, is the nerdiest episode of the show we've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> the adaptation for this that HBO did, uh, mm-hmm. I thought was particularly strong. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, per- and especially those first few episodes. Jason Bateman just crushes it as Terry Maitland. I've been rewatching it over the past week, sort of in, in anticipation of this recording. And those first two episodes specifically are so untouchable. They're they're pitch perfect. And Mendelssohn is so good. And um, I guess Holly doesn't come into it for for several episodes. But uh, what did you think of the the adaptation? I was completely blown away. Yes. Um, To me, that's exactly how you do an adaptation. This outsider adaptation should be a model that everyone else tries to match. You know, it's so, so good. Well, Well, it's got, it's got those beats of a procedural, like you were saying Mm -hmm. before. So Mm -hmm. it's, you can see the structure of it, like right from the beginning. Yeah. I I think my only complaint is that it spins its wheels a little bit, like it maybe a little consolidation, like say Mm -hmm. eight episodes instead of 10, I think would have helped it. Yeah. You know, on the whole it's, it's, it's great. And it's certainly better than a lot of the other King miniseries adaptations that I've seen in the last, I don't know. 10 years. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Totally agree. Well, a p- part of that is, is how like it, once again, we have, we talked on the show about what happens when King gets the triple a treatment. Very mm-hmm. rarely does it go awry when that happens. Dreamcatcher is the obvious example. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, to kind of counteract my point, but mm-hmm. you know, when you get actors like Cynthia Revo and you get actors like Ben yeah. Mendelsohn yeah. and Jason Bateman, and you, you tell the story seriously, you know, with a high production budget and, you know, you get lots of production value, like suddenly it, it becomes something different. It, it, we saw that with, um, 
the Mushietti It movie. Huh. You know, you you give some something that high production value and, and take it seriously, then then you know all the things seem to lock into place. I think where a lot of the Stephen King adaptations go wrong is is when it's either done on the cheap or even if not cheap on budget, if it's done, you know, just kind of without taking the whole yeah. uh, project seriously, you know, yeah. and there's a danger there of, if you do it that way, then you're in danger of ignoring some of the humor in, in King's work or focusing too much, you know, on humor. That, that's the line that I, I think I'm talking about here is, is uh, the mm-hmm. outsider, I think kind of nailed that right mix of, of material, especially since the characters are so strong here. And I think that's why I, I lo- like, I love Ralph Anderson. Who's the, who the cynical detective. Mm-hmm. He's the one that just cannot mm-hmm. believe the, yeah. in the, the supernatural. It goes against everything that he's ever learned. And, um, you know, and that's an old dynamic. That's the Mulder and Scully, yeah. right. Yeah. You know, thing, but it works so well when you have, uh, Ralph Anderson paired with Holly Gibney, who uh, Gibney's no fool either, but she's also, you know, she, she's not, you know, a crystal worshiping, yeah. you know, psychic or anything, but she, yeah. you know, like, like you mentioned, like her superpowers that she won't uh, rule out anything. Yeah. So anything is on the table until it is proven not to be, be correct. Definitely. Did, didn't, did Jason Bateman direct all of those or some of those? I don't know. Just don't... the first two. Okay. Yeah. That, that, I think that... maybe one of the, maybe okay. he, let me look real quick. Maybe he directed the. Yeah. Nope. Just those first two. Okay. He, he's really he's a strong, strong director. I listened to an interview he did the other day with Judd Apatow, just talking about mm-hmm. directing, and he just he really knows the craft, the technique, all of it. That yeah. dude's been around forever, though. I mean, imagine yeah. how much shit you've observed yeah. by that point in your career. Yeah. You've seen a master class in directing by that point, but yeah, for sure. Something you touched on earlier was the idea of like deep fake technology yeah. and and stuff like that. And one of the bigger horrors in this story that sort of goes unsung is the idea of being seriously accused of something that you didn't do before. Mm -hmm. And there, there being evidence that you might've done it. What sort of like a, like Kafka esque existential crisis that would, (laughs) that would lead to. Yeah. Uh, Have you ever been accused of something like something serious that you have not done before, Stephen? I have, yeah. When I was 17, I guess, I got pulled over by a police officer. And then he called in the rest of the police officers and the homicide detectives. And they took me to interrogation and interrogated me for a few hours about the murder of this young woman where I grew up. And um, Jesus. Yeah. And they Good thought, God. And, and they thought I had done it. And I didn't even know who she was. And um, it you match a out, description or was were they yeah, just being racist my, or like I, what? I, the I, I matched the description and my truck really matched the description. That was the big thing. That was how they, that was the reason the cop pulled me over in the first place was my truck. But then I also matched the description, except what saved me here was um that I had a mullet back then. And they said that there was, a, <laughs> there, was there was one clear description of this guy who had done it. And he, they could see the back of his neck in this description. And they said, if I'd had short hair, then this would be going a lot further, you know, but because wow. I had a mullet, it, uh, I, they let me loose later that night, you know, holy the, fucking the, shit. It's the, yeah. the one time in, in the history of all recorded mankind that a mullet has been a good thing. So. Saved by the mullets. What was your fear like in that situation? Were you like, I'm, I know I'm not guilty, so I'm not sweating this? Or were you like, holy shit, I'm about to get butt fucked by the universe and like what's going down right here? Yeah, more and more the second one. Cause by that time, I, the yeah. cops that have been like, you know, pushing me around pretty, pretty well by for a couple of years by then, you know? And I'm um, like, where I grew up, the cops would, 
they'd pull you over and they'd say, do you want a field ticket or do you want me to write you up? And a field ticket meant they drove you out past the city limits and beat you up and left you out there, you know? Um, what? Yeah. And um, Christ, this is in Midland? Yeah, in Midland. And they would also, they would also try to arrest all the long hairs on Friday night so that they'd have to stay until Monday. And if you're in, if you're locked up that long, then they can say that you're a lice concern. And so they shave, they cut all your hair off that you've been growing for five years or whatever, you know? Oh, wow. Um, Good so, God. So yeah, I was, I already had a, um, well, I don't have a, I don't have a snappy response to that, nor should I. That's just awful. Yeah. no, that's just um, it, But that's the way it was. And so I knew, I knew what can happen if you get taken down to the station, you know? And so, yeah, I was definitely very scared. It's another side of this thing. Just how, King knows how to play with those fears that you've experienced yeah. that, you know, yeah. yourself and, you know, making a creature that feeds off of all that, that yeah. stuff and the, yeah. the, just the depression it, that must've set in yeah. you know, around, yeah. around the all instant, that yeah. fear. But you know where where it gets, I think where this story or where the situation like really ramps up is when you start doubting yourself, you know, you're like, mm. well, the evidence says I did it. Maybe, maybe I don't know myself as well as I thought, you know, and that, that to undermine someone's sense of certainty about themselves is to me just about the greatest horror. Mm, right. Yeah. And that's, and I ask this because, you know, while rewatching the series, I was just like, I was just noting how calm Jason Bateman seems mm -hmm. in those scenes. Mm -hmm. And I think he's, he's playing to the former option. And yeah. the, the question yeah. I posed earlier where he's yeah. like, he knows he's not guilty. So he assumes that eventually something will turn up to prove his innocence. But mm -hmm. I've been accused of things I didn't do before. And mm -hmm. it's like a real sore spot for me. Like if you accuse me of something I didn't do, I got real mad real quick. Mm -hmm. Like that's just baked into my DNA. Yeah. But never something on that level. And, you know, or like that you dealt with or that, you know, like a child murder like Terry yeah. Maitland is dealing with. But I think that in that situation, I would just lose my shit. I think I would be so pissed off and emotional about it that I think it would probably end up making me look worse. Yeah, I think it would. You know? They'd be saying right. he, protests, he protests too much. You know, he might. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. that's eventually what'll get me thrown in prison. But, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just the indignity of that in any situation and, and the horror of it, I think, is like I was saying before, I think this is an unsung sort of like of the of the horrors within the outsider. This is one mm -hmm. that people don't talk about very often enough. And yeah, and that's. Yeah kind of why i wanted to bring it up yeah well, you know also in the in the outsider since this creature feeds on grief that means we the reader have to um really get intimate with engaging the grief cycle these various people suffering all this stuff right. and and that's that's a place we don't often go in horror like like you know i love slashers but slashers very rarely go to the funeral or deal with the family who are a senior you know and i'm um, and I think that's a missed opportunity. And I think King is, of course, um, really wisely building this dynamic such that he makes us mire down in that grief ourselves. And and just imagine what it must be like to have have someone taken away like this. And it hurts, you know, immeasurably, of course. But um, we can't look away either because um, it's so real. You know, it's so it seems to be so accurately portrayed. You You've know, written about all kinds of. Uh, how should I say this? You've written a number of of novels and short stories that run the gamut of mm -hmm. various types of horrors. Mm -hmm. But I suspect that slasher is your favorite flavor of horror. It is. is that true? It is, yeah. And, you know, I think I, I always wonder if it isn't King who 
turn me on to slashers. He doesn't write slashers himself, but he does write about bullies and slashers are the mm-hmm. ultimate bully and final girls are heroes because they stand up to bullies, you know? And, and I totally believe that we should all stand up to bullies and we should all want to be final girls, you know? And right. I mean, I think, you know, I, I shouldn't lay it all off on King though. It's also Scooby-Doo, you know, I like Scooby-Doo a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's the two S's of growing up, Scooby and Steven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <sure>. <laughs> <laughs> There's an interesting angle in what you were talking about, the grief cycle that I don't think is brought up a lot with this story, but it's one of my personal favorite Um, angles on this and once again going back to the character of ralph anderson you have this guy who you know he knew terry maitland he knows terry maitland he's you know they're family friends and but he is so sure of of uh this guy's guilt that you know he agrees to the da who wants like a a splashy arrest or whatever on while he's coaching little league Uh and he agrees to go do this thing and you know, he realizes, you know, after Terry is killed and after he starts to buy into the existence of this creature that essentially framed his friend, that he has only been helping everything that this creature has yeah. wanted. He has to wrestle with that. And he realizes he's essentially killed his friend and done all the bidding, essentially, for this creature by making the arrest splashy, by making it. A, a big deal that the whole town is focused on and angry about and that you know fervor led to the shooting of this guy this book is filled with a lot of great characters i'd also love to talk about jack hoskins who's the kind of the the corrupt cop that yeah. is doing the bidding of, of the outsider at a certain point too but yeah. ralph anderson to me is is the most interesting character in this book and it's precisely because sure. he's a skeptic yeah. pre- precisely because he's always wrestling with what he believes and he knows something's not right but he can't put his finger on it and goes you know against his better judgment a lot of the times and every time he does you know he pays for it emotionally in some way and and uh, I don't know, like, I think it's such a fascinating character. And and I know that the King loves Holly, but I would love to see more from from Anderson. He, he ha- makes a small appearance and if it bleeds as well. But yeah, uh, well, I'd you know, Anderson, him. he's built in this in this novel. Uh, he, he's the one who has an arc. You know, he goes from non-belief to kind of forced belief, whereas Holly, right. she's a series character. She her her arc is always the solution of the case, you know, Um, right. right, right. She doesn't actually change. And that's, that's that's how you build a series character, you know? Um, But yeah, no, I I agree. Anderson is really compelling that way that he is um, kind of blindsided by the supposed secret actions of someone he thought he knew. That's the moment we live in, you know, like I think we're all terrified that someone we implicitly trust is going to turn out to be some version of a Harvey Weinstein, you know? Right. And we're going to have to say, we're going to have to like reconsider everything in our world you know like how did we how did we unknowingly like help this person do the bad they were doing i knew a guy once i i went to military school with him actually and a few years after we all graduated um or went our separate ways i should say he was calling me up he was living in uh was either in arizona or new mexico i think it was arizona but uh this guy was a good friend of mine i had known him for years at that point like Totally normal dude, as far as I could tell. And so we kept in touch and he got a job at a radio station. Then he was doing like concert promotion and he would call and tell these, you know, tell me these crazy stories about what was going on at, you know, behind the scenes at this concert or that concert, you know, very entertaining to talk Mm -hmm. to. And then he came and visited us uh, one summer 
uh, me and my girlfriend, he stayed with us. And while he was there, he met uh, another uh, lady that we were both friends with. And they started hooking up. And then he started mo- talking about moving to Dallas. And there were like these whole, you know, there was there was like a six month stretch where it was it was this guy came and visited us. He fell in love while he was here. Now he's going to move down here to be with this other lady. And all through this, we're talking about his job and can he transfer the job and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, everyone was really excited about it. And we find out like after this had been this went on for a year, it got stretched out. And then we find out at one point, it turns out everything he ever told us was bullshit. Wow. Every fucking story. He never had, he never worked at a radio station. Wow. He didn't have any money that he like claimed to have had. Like what, what little he did have and used very effectively was like stuff he had sort of bullied out of his grandmother or something. And then like, like all of it was, was bullshit. And the this was like a major moment in my life where I realized like, holy shit, like people you trust, people you like trust implicitly with your life can just be lying to your face wholesale yeah. Yeah. and you will not know it unless you maintain a healthy sort of uh, skepticism. Yeah. No, I had, um, a mo- I had a moment like that. That was too. just one of the wildest like turn of events I've ever lived through. It, it was just like. Wow. The ending of usual suspects in in live action, like seeing it right before you, like this is not what I thought this was, and and then the questions are like, well, who is this fucking guy? Like, who have we been dealing with? Like, what is he capable of? That was some freaky shit. That is that is crazy. That yeah, that I mean, I guess you come away from an experience like that thinking the only person you can know really is yourself, you know? Totally. But then, totally. then what if you're Terry Maitland and you kind of have, <laughs> you have that taken away, you know? You, right. Do I even yeah, that's know? That's true. Do I even know my own actions? Yeah. But you know, I had or, a, or, I had a situation like that too. When I was in high school, you know, one Friday night, everybody's out doing what everybody does on Friday night. And then the next morning, um, turns out one of my, a girl I knew, um, had been raped and beaten up terribly. Her whole face just swollen shut. And, um, and so I went, I got a bat and I went to the house where it was supposed to have happened to, you know, take care of whoever had done this. And, um, this guy met me at the door, you know, no shirt, no shoes. And he said, Oh, he, he says he thinks he knows who did it. And so we drove around that whole morning looking for who did it. We never found him. And then I found out weeks and weeks later that it was that guy who drove, who I drove around with, you know? Wow. Christ. Yeah. The um, mask, the mask that people people wear, like on wow. a daily basis, yeah. that you can just encounter randomly, is is one of the more terrifying aspects of adult life. I think. Oh man, it is. You know, and whether it's your boss who's just talking out of their ass the whole time, and they're like promising you things they're never going to deliver on, or a guy you went to school with who's like claims he works at concerts and he doesn't, or like your situation, mm-hmm. you know, the guy that was responsible for the crime. It's like that's it's so fucking crazy i think this is why i'm so misanthropic i just don't trust anything anymore yeah, yeah. and it seems like that only gets worse with uh with age no yeah don't <laughs> can definitely be a it can just a series of disillusionments you know for sure in the book the outsider um i think once they move into texas they start encountering locals who are basically referring to the outsider as el cuco Mm-hmm. which is like a you know sort yeah. of a like a borderline like it's like a mystical almost like chupacabra mm-hmm. sort of legend and i'm wondering steven since you are you're a native american mm-hmm. uh, of the blackfeet tribe mm-hmm. 
And I'm wondering what your, did you have legends like this? Did you have something that was like the outsider? Not, not as far as I know. No. However, when I read the outsider, it broke my heart completely because about maybe two months before I read it, I'd written a novel about a monster who changes its face slowly, you know? And I was like, I was like, dang, King King did it again. You know, (laughs) that novel is still going to come out, but uh, I'd put it on kind of like the slow release because I didn't want to, I didn't want it to seem like, um, I read a good book called The Outsider and I'm doing fan fiction. <laughs> you know? I read this. I read an interview with you where you were talking about this happening with another thing you'd written. Oh, with Demon Theory. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah. It's just, I mean, things are in the air and people just pick them out. And some sometimes something gets to the shelf before you, before you can get your thing to the shelf. And that's just the way it goes. You know, you can't, you can't be bitter about it or anything. You can just try to be faster. No. <laughs> All right. It's like comedians finding the same joke. Yeah. I mean, some jokes are universal. You're going to get there. Yeah. At the same time, you're going to you're going to have the same thought. It just it just happens. Yep. But it sounds like you're such a prodigious writer. You must be sitting on multiple books. Yes, I am. Yeah, I've got a whole lot of novels slated to come out for sure. Um, I think I have one haunted house novel, two or three slashers. Um, and yeah, and I mean, talking about novels that are in the trunk. You know, people always ask me, they always ask me, how many novels have you written? And I'm like, do you really want that answer? Because it's probably like in the high 40s, you know, but um, <laughs> right. how many novels have I published? That's a different number, you know? You're right, <laughs> right. Because a, lo- a lot of them that I write don't deserve to see any light at all. You know, they're just like me trying to, <laughs> me trying to figure something out and it all goes yeah. south, you know? Well, working that shit out is like part of the job, it you is, know, yeah. and and getting better at your at your trade. Yeah. You know, yeah. so that makes sense. Yeah, no, but no, I'm. I, I, that's the way I like to rewrite. I don't like to actually redo a novel I've written. I like to just write a better novel without those same mistakes. You know, I, I'd love to ask you a, a couple of questions. One, as a writer, like I'm always curious how authors what they pull from Stephen King stuff, especially if they're big King fans is like, mm-hmm. do you did you pull just inspiration, general inspiration from King stuff? Do you pull like craft things like oh this is a great way to mm-hmm. you know to to structure a paragraph or a sentence you know or whatever to get this yeah this thought across is like you know do you essentially i guess the question is do you read the books differently than than just a fan you know uh, of the books or do you like pull something deeper from i it? do i mean i do take craft tech, craft tricks from king for sure like i think when king got on the scene he has a way of advancing his dialogue tags to pretty much the first natural break in the character's dialogue and what that does is that tells the reader how to intone this paragraph of dialogue whatever whatever it is whereas um before king i'm not saying he was the first to do it but he made it so popular that it became the default setting before king like back with somerset mom days or something in the early 20th century writers would give you a whole big old long soliloquy and then at the end say simon said and i'm like oh man i thought that was delilah you know (laughs) (laughs) and then i have to go back and read it again in delilah's voice um king his writing is much more efficient or maybe economical is way to say it um in that by advancing the tags we don't have to get in those little loops where we go back to intone it correctly and i think that's really a gift that he's given to to all of us it's it's not just horror i think him being so dominant on the scene, people don't consciously mimic him, I don't think, but they read enough of him that it seeps in and kind of osmosis through what they what they do themselves. And yeah, so totally. now when you when you pick up any book in the airport or wherever, um, 
it generally will have advanced tags. And I'm really thankful to King for giving us that. <laughs> My second question is, you know, you have a fairly unique perspective uh, on this. King has, there's been a couple of times he's had some iffy mm-hmm. uh, indigenous characters in mm-hmm. his, uh, yeah. in his work. Like, do, is that something that you look at and go, well, nice try for, you know, a white guy, essentially when I'm thinking specifically of like John Rainbird in yeah. uh, Firestarter. Firestarter. Yeah. For you sure. know, um, creep show you know, there's also well, a little bit of that. In, well, cre- creep show yeah. too. Right. Yeah. He, uh, th- that's another, another big one, but yeah. uh, there's also a little bit in pet cemetery yeah. where they, they try to, yeah. you know, dive into the, the Micmac legend or yeah. whatever um like is that something that like kind of sticks out like a sore thumb to you or is or is it do you think he actually has his heart in the right place when he's writing about that stuff yeah i don't, I don't think he intends tends badness I don't, I don't feel like um there is of course a i don't know an impulse in american fiction specifically to um go back to so-called ancient times with natives and make that the source of the magic or the haunting or whatever. I mean, it's Indian graveyard, Indian burial ground trope. Right, right. Um, But um, actually I I got to push back against that in this, my heart is a chainsaw because my heart is a chainsaw. The like dynamo powering everything is basically a Christian burial ground, you know? So I wanted to, Ah, perfect. Yeah. I wanted to turn (laughs) that, I wanted to turn that upside down, but you know, talking about creep show, I don't even, did did King write that that segment? I don't remember. He probably did. He's got a story by credit on the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. I I just looked, I just looked into it. He, he came up with the story and Romero wrote it and like wrote it out, fleshed it out. No, I mean, I'm, I'm so happy when that wooden Indian kills all them dudes, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) well, they did deserve it for sure. Yeah, They definitely did. No, I was totally happy. I mean, he's basically bringing the, you know, Hank senior Caliga story to life, you know, but um, I'm cool with that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> uh well before we wrap it up and even though that is a perfect segue to talk about what you're talking about i i do i can't end this uh outsider discussion um <laughs> without uh circling back to jack hoskins because this is another yeah. fascinating area here because this, this is you know this is the henry bowers essentially yeah. of this yeah. story right so here's this cop who feels like you know he should have anderson's job like he's uh-huh. a competitor with uh the lead detective in this this case and he essentially gets corrupted by the outsider much like henry bowers is the the human doing the bidding of pennywise and in, in uh it um and he essentially i if my memory is correct like uh the outsider appears to him and you know not really a, a physical form but still touches the yeah. back of his neck yeah. and causes like a redness there uh-huh. and, a, and a painful redness uh-huh. there that he is convinced this guy is cancer deadly cancer and if he doesn't screw up the investigation into figuring out who the outsider is and yeah. what it is and yeah. where it is that uh, this cop will will die a painful excruciating death uh, so he's already he picks somebody who's already has animosity towards the protagonist of the story mm. and just kind of nudges him with something that might be complete bullshit probably is bullshit but it's an he, this guy buys it enough to go kind of crazy and become the the human threat of the novel uh, i don't know if i have a question there but i do really love that aspect of uh, of the book and I, re- I really like the threat and again the complicated threat where there are times where this guy doesn't want 
to do what he is doing, but he feels like he has to, and he also kind of wants to a little bit. No, you're you're definitely right. And King has this character type shot through a lot of his um, novels and stories, or novels probably more so. Um, it's basically trash can man, you know. Um, right. It's the bit, yeah. it's the like um, Johnny Ringo to Curly in Tombstone. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's the one with the firepower, the one who's going to do the do the do the bad deeds, and then. At the top, you have the smooth heavy, as it used to be called in the you know fifties and sixties westerns. The actual bad guy, who's like the cattle baron or the railroad person or whatever it is, who's actually engineering all this badness, like the outsider is. Um, and that back of the neck stuff is really fun because it seems to be. I mean, it's probably not a conscious nod, but it's on a continuum with like um, X Files. You know how the aliens all had that back of the neck thing that you could poke them and they right. would hiss, they would fizzle away, and. I guess Dark Angel had the barcodes on the back of the neck too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah, back but, of the neck is a very sensitive place. It is, man. It is. And we can't see it, you know? So we don't really. And it's it's usually hidden, especially if you have a mullet, you know? I was going to say, that's <laughs> right. why you need that mullet. Though. <laughs> <laughs> there, There is a hidden fear that you talked about there is, you know, I think that there's, I, I saw something about like melanoma, skin melanomas. Uh-huh. It's like right behind the ear and like back of the neck is where it happens because you never see it. It's because you never you can never catch it. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people don't have enough mullets anymore. That's it's it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, the mullets will just make it harder to see that melanoma. Yeah, but, but the sun wouldn't get there in the first place. Man. That's true. That's true. The the natural the natural protection of the mullet come, comes through. Yeah. Chut, Chut Buggins would be his neck is, is perfectly fine. Years years ago, when my son was like I don't know five years old, I had him at the barbershop shop up in the chair, and the the person cutting the hair kept asking me this, this, and I kept saying, you know, like this, like that. And she finally said, sir, I am not giving your son a mullet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a childhood is the time where you can get away with those, yeah. with the worst haircuts. I had a fucking rat tail when I was like oh, 10 years old. Nice, so nice. Scott would, knows what I look like and try to picture, <laughs> you know, chubby 10 year old me with a rat tail. And no, and I'm not going to picture that at all. <laughs> I don't want to, I, I, dec- I respectfully decline. <laughs> I tried, right. I tried to do a skunk stripe when I was like 13, bleep, bleep, bleep the line, you know, but it didn't, it didn't work out very well. It was just like a splotch of paleness, you know? I went through, a, I went through a phase in like around about eighth grade where I thought I'd grow my hair long uh-huh. and it started with a bowl cut uh-huh. and oh, like Jesus. a, like a middle part and just like, you know, it yeah. was essentially a bowl cut. And the thing was like, every time it started threatening to get a little lower, my parents would make me cut it. So it just remained a bowl cut. <laughs> and then eventually I was like, we have to do something about this. Like, even as an eighth grader, I was like, what you're doing here is irresponsible. <laughs> I mean, they Get solved that pile. by sending me to military school the yeah. next year, I guess. Yeah. You know, there was no more of that. They buzz but... you? You get a buzz cut in military school? Oh, fuck school? yeah. Yeah, fuck yeah, yeah you do. Yeah. You had to go every yeah. week. It sucked well, ass. That, that, that would solve the uh, <laughs> the bowl cut problem. When you say that, I picture uh, Uncle Fester whenever... Uh, uh, in Adam's family values, yeah, whenever he's all dressed up rich, yes, you know <laughs> exactly that. I had the white tux, the whole, and the and the turquoise turtleneck underneath it. Yeah, right. When Joan Cusack is like making him try to be like a, a rich guy. Yeah, that's my exact look in eighth grade. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, it was a big hit with the with the lady teachers, though. So don't uh, you know, don't knock it till you try it. I was gonna say it um, was Texas, so. Yeah. <laughs> 
Steven, you you mentioned this before. Uh, Your new novel, My Heart is a Chainsaw, comes out this month. Uh Uh, For anyone who might be interested, what can you tell us about it? What's uh, lay out the the gist? It's a slasher. It's Jade Daniels is an outcast in Proof Rock, Idaho, which is a small town, eight thousand feet up the mountain, and she lives for slashers. She slashers are her lens upon the world. They're her defense. She she tries to insulate herself with slashers and slasher trivia. Every conversation, every interchange for her revolves around slashers, or maybe devolves to slashers. And um, then across the lake in what was the national park really gated community goes starts to go up terra nova it's all these um really rich tycoons moving to town and buying up the national park land and building mansions making this into a resort but where jade grew up in proof rock it's three thousand people they just live close to the bone you know they 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 don't they never expected camelot to go up across the lake Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. halfway around the lake there is um camp blood the site of a um you know sleepaway camp type of massacre 50 years ago and you know people start dying and jade recognizes this is the opening beats of a slasher she's been praying for her her whole life for a slasher (laughs) slasher to come to town and she recognizes what's going on she tries to tell the sheriff she tries to tell everybody and she's jade daniel she's the outcast she's the horror chick nobody believes her and then it gets really, really bloody, and she's trying to train. <laughs> she's trying to train a final girl to stand up to this slasher. And um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of blood in the water by the end of this novel. Well, we're right uh, up my alley. <laughs> we both we've both got copies of it, and you know, I look forward to finishing it. And I don't think I need to even recommend this one to our listeners. They're already on top of this. You are one of the prevailing voices in the uh, the horror genre right now. It was a really really big pleasure to talk to you today you were you were great this was man this was this was i could have talked about stephen king stuff for hours i feel like well please please come back yeah i will you got you got all those other books you're gonna have to do other uh appearances to promote them i'm game just work through your whole list dude let's do it yeah (laughs) all right well thank you so much for being here today thank you for having me Many thanks to Stephen Graham Jones. That is just a lovely, lovely, lovely man. He had so many spider stories, and uh, <laughs> and I was so delighted when he kept pulling out new and fresher spider stories. Each more pleasant than the last. But yeah, that's uh, that was that was a hell of an interview. Um, love that dude, and uh, what a delight to finally get to talk about the Outsider. Been doing this show for a year. We haven't even touched the outsider. It's, it's I know. Little special trivia is that the very first thing that we attempted in the early days of uh, developing the King Cast was we saw the first three episodes. I think oh, it was the first true. two, two episodes of the Outsider. Uh, they screened it in Austin. This is pre uh, lockdown, of course, pre COVID times, and mm-hmm. uh, and we're like, hey, well, you know, we were kicking around the idea for doing the show, and we're like, well, let's do a test run, and it was just us like sitting in a room with a microphone talking about what we saw in the Outsider, and nobody will ever hear uh, that episode. Yeah. I'm gonna burn it uh, every single copy because it is god awful, but it was good enough for us to go. There might be something here. So, <laughs> yeah, those early episodes are a little rickety, just a little. You bit. know, it takes a minute to settle into the groove, but we got it. You know, yeah, we got a baby. I Don't listened to the, the first episode with Kamail not long ago and was just like, I could only get through a few minutes of it. I was like, oh, oh my no. God, we are not well practiced at this yet. So, <laughs> I'm glad our game improved. <laughs> yes, for sure. So, so let's. So. Yes. So, so, so let's talk about what's happening uh, next week. 
this this one's kind of exciting because it is the result of the listeners. Yes, this is uh, we're we're going to once again tell you who the guest is and the topic because we've already made this kind of public. Uh, If you follow us on Twitter, which is at KingCast19, by the way, plug, plug, plug. You'll notice that we did a poll recently where we had our Twitter followers pick what title our next guest is going to do. And our next guest, of course, is the returning KingCast champion, Miss Kate Siegel Mm -hmm. uh, of Haunting of Hill House fame and, of course, the upcoming Midnight Mass. Um, Mm -hmm. And we knew she was coming back on the show. And if you know Kate, she is probably like the most well-read King person we've ever had on the show. She knows Stephen King backwards and forwards. So she was like, fuck yeah, we'll do whatever. And so we'll leave it up to the KingCast listeners. And Do you think she knows King better than Flanagan? I think that... It's at the very least equal footing. You're trying to get me in trouble with somebody. There is no good answer to this. Um, You know what? I think that Flanagan has a deep understanding of what makes King work, but I think that Kate might even match him there. I think that she probably has outread Flanagan on King. I really do think that's true. I think they're equally matched, and that's not just a political answer. You know, uh, it sounds like a political it, answer to me. If it, it's it's if they're not, it's so close that it might as well be. Right. You know, I would take either one of them on my team for like a trivia, a, a Stephen oh, King trivia thing. You no know, joke. No problem. And so <laughs> what uh, what movie did the listeners select? Eric? The listeners selected Secret Window. So we gave him the option of four things uh, and three of which we'd never covered. Right. With the Needful Things was on there. Um, mm-hmm. which we have covered before. Uh, what were the other ones? There was uh, Secret Window, which one? Uh, Mercy was Mercy one of them. Would, and yeah. uh, No Smoking was the other. And that is the, uh, the uh, I believe it's Hindi uh, adaptation of Quitters Incorporated. Right. Uh, has at least one Bollywood number in it. This was the one that secretly, uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but Kate and I were both kind of rooting for that one and hoping for it. But uh the listeners went with Secret Window. Presumably they want to hear us use Johnny Depp as a punching bag for for an hour, which, you know, fair enough. I rewatched Secret Window in advance of this episode and I had I had a good time with it. It's a weird, weird fucking movie. Mm. I'll save all that for the show, but um, there's going to be a lot to chew over on that one. So not the title I was rooting for, but also like it's going to result in a great episode. So who can complain? Now, you mentioned... Picking a good trivia host or yes. a trivia uh, partner, that actually kind of ties into what are, what's happening on our Patreon, doesn't it? Yeah, this Friday we are bringing back the uh, Stephen King trivia game uh, with our friend Brian Collins, who led us through the last one. Uh, that's available on our Patreon. It's called the Stephen King Trivia Ambush because uh, Vespi did not know at the time when we booked that episode what we were going to be talking about and i tried to spring it on him in an effort to win uh i did not succeed in in that in that regard perhaps uh, i should have seen that coming but um this time we're we're gonna bring back brian we're gonna bring back the game but we're bringing in a special guest uh and that is anthony bresnikin uh he was the co-host of that um Oh, God, I always forget the name. The Stan podcast. That, the that Company of the Flanagan. Mad. Yeah. Company of the Mad. Yes. Uh, he, he, you will also remember him as the guy who helped us launch the Patreon. He was, he was the guest on our very first commentary track for the Dark Tower. Um, Anthony knows his Stephen King shit left, right, and center. 
uh, he's, he's as, as well read in that area as we are. And, um, he's just one of our favorite people. So we thought he'd be a great guy to, to rope into this. And, uh, he's already predicting that, um, that Eric's going to sweep once again, but, uh, we'll see. We'll see how this turns out. Everybody loves to put somebody on a pedestal just so they can knock him off. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to go in as humble as, as I can possibly be in this because uh, I expect to lose every game that I play. That's my mm. secret. No, I'm going to lose the hardest for sure because I'm terrible at trivia. I don't know why I keep subjecting myself to these things, but uh, I also don't mind looking like an idiot. So, you know, it'll be fun we'll no matter what. But and, and Brian, Brian's yeah, a great yeah, yeah. Uh, trivia master. He comes up with some great questions and. And, you know, and he'll do some fair stuff and then some tricky stuff. So it's always a good a good mix. Yeah, totally. And that's on the Patreon this Friday. If you're not already a Patreon, go over to patreon.com backslash the KingCast and get signed up. So uh, yeah. go over there, throw us a couple bucks and uh, you'll have at least like, what, 60 back episodes to listen to like immediately. <laughs> so so much you will you will have so much of our voices if you go and sign up now and uh, have never been there. There's commentaries for days tons of bonus episodes lots of special guests uh exclusive interviews all that fun stuff and mm-hmm. uh, yeah so that's over at patreon.com slash the kingcast and of course you can find us on twitter at kingcast 19 and uh yeah i think that's it for for all the housework yeah i believe it is we'll see you next right. week folks all right later the kingcast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric vespi that's me and scott wampler Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>